If you knew that you had just one day left to live, how would you spend your time? If you knew your time was short, what would you do? I'm sure most of us would spend time with our closest family and friends. We'd want to spend time with those we love. We, we might try to knock off an item or two from our bucket list. And of course, we'd want to communicate any final lessons to our children or our spouse, to those dearly beloveds. I suspect that if someone were to survey those final few hours, they would see what you loved, what you lived for. In just that time, they would get a pretty good picture of who you are. This morning, we turn to Mark chapter 14 as we consider Jesus' final night before he was killed. As we come to Jesus' final hours, we get further clarity as to exactly why he came and what he came to do. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 14. We'll be in verses 1 to 31 this morning. We're in our 21st week in the Gospel of Mark, with just a few remaining. And so far in Mark's Gospel, we've seen God the Father anoint God the Son with God the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. And then over the past 13 chapters, Jesus has authoritatively healed and taught and worked miracles. He's astounded the crowds and infuriated the religious leaders and shown mercy to the miserable. Though many thought he was merely an impressive prophet or a powerful miracle worker, since chapter 8, he decisively and climactically revealed himself as the Christ, that is, the King of Israel. He is Israel's long-awaited Messiah, but he's also the suffering Son of Man who comes to take up his cross and give his life for the gospel. And both of these realities are coming true as Jesus has now arrived in Jerusalem. This means that Israel and her religious establishment will no longer be the focal point of God's redemptive purposes. It will be Jesus' followers. And so last week we saw indeed that Jesus dramatically predicted the destruction of the temple and the certainty of his own eventual return. Thus we arrive at Mark chapter 14 this morning. We'll have three points, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Jesus is the Passover lamb who enacts the new covenant. Jesus is the Passover lamb who enacts the new covenant. I said this a few weeks ago. I'll say it again now. This is the best part of the sermon right now when I read the passage. So let's pay attention to God's word. Mark 14, beginning in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. 
For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Amen. Our first point is found in verses 1 to 11, entitled, Jesus Prepared for Death. And what we're going to find in today's passage is that our first point is one of those famous Markin sandwiches. Uh, the second point is a background, some background information. And the third point, we get again a Markin sandwich. Okay, so what are these Markin sandwiches that Scott is referring to? Well, you'll recall that Mark has a habit of starting a story he interrupts that story with a second story, and then he'll return to the first story. And the reason he does this uh, time and time again in his gospel is to communicate that the middle section, you should interpret that in light of the first and the third sections. And those outside sections, 
you need to interpret in light of the middle section. So in verses 1 to 11, this is kind of one sandwich, but the beginning of it, the bread as it were, in this first larger point, is found in verses 1 and 2. Uh, The time indicator in verse 1 is unusually important. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. It's really crucial that we note at the outset that this takes place, the entire passage, in the context of the Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, That is, Jesus didn't decide to come to Jerusalem at a random time. Since chapter 8, he's been journeying to Israel's capital city, and he's done so at a climactic time, at really the high point in the nation of Israel, their year, the beginning of their year. It's what Ashley read for us earlier from Exodus 12, how the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread kicked off their year. It's kind of like the New Year's celebration. It would have brought tens of thousands of Jewish pilgrims into the capital city as they sought to remember God's saving activity some 1,400 years prior. It was kind of like a reenactment of that first Passover when God exodused his people from slavery and established the Mosaic Covenant. Yet, the chief priests and the scribes aren't in a particularly observant mood, right? You notice that. They're trying to devise a way to kill Jesus. Uh, They intend to wait out the festival, and that's how we arrive at verses 3 to 9, which is the middle of this Markan sandwich. Jesus has chosen a unique time to come, and then we see in verse 3 that a woman approaches Jesus and she pours this expensive flask of ointment over his head. Mark describes it as very costly. And yet some people didn't approve. Some of Jesus' own disciples didn't approve. So they scold her there. You see it in verses four and five. Why was the ointment wasted like that? But this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. All right, now pause. Was this question asked out of genuine concern for the poor? I mean, shouldn't Christians and Jesus be concerned about the poor? Well, of course, yes. But Jesus knows that this question hasn't actually been asked out of sincere love for neighbor. That's why Jesus responds the way he does in verses 6 and 7. She has done a beautiful thing for me. You will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Jesus' point is this. If you're really so concerned about the poor, well, why aren't you doing more in your own time, on your own dime, to help them? If you're really so concerned about them. You're always going to have them, but you're not always going to have me. Friends, who in the world does Jesus think he is? This guy apparently thinks he's more important than the poor. That it was right for this woman to value him more than other people. You know, just two chapters ago, Jesus reminded us that the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart and love our neighbor as ourself. 
here, Jesus asserts himself in the place of God as deserving of our highest devotion and allegiance. That we should love him supremely. And that's what the disciples don't get. That's why they think this money has been wasted on Jesus. They think it's possible to have excess devotion to Jesus. When friends, it is never possible to value him too highly. Uh, You see these disciples, their problem wasn't that they valued the poor too much, but that they valued Christ too little. They're put off by her commitment to the Lord Jesus. And yet again, beloved, it's just not possible to be too committed. Whether you're a widow with two pennies or whether you're in possession of a family heirloom worth a year's wages, that's what 300 denarii was. It's impossible to be too devoted to Christ because it's impossible to outgive Christ. You know, he's about to lay down his life. How can we respond any other way? than in total commitment to him. Notice also verse 8. Jesus says she's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will be told. Uh, Notice three things. First, she's done what she could. You could say that about the widow two chapters ago, couldn't you? who gives her two pennies to God. She did what she could. And as one British preacher by the name of Dick Lucas said, wouldn't it be great on that last day to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You did what you could. It may be very little. It may be very much. But you did what you could. So this woman served Christ faithfully. Second, notice that this woman, she did what she could. She understands something about Jesus that apparently his disciples do not. Jesus has to tell them, you won't always have me, but she comes to prepare his body for burial. That is, she understands that Jesus, his time is limited. He is headed to the cross She understands that Jesus is the suffering son of man. As we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, spiritual enlightenment and insight often comes from the most unlikely of places. The disciples don't get it. This unnamed woman, she understands who Jesus is. And so thirdly, why is her good deed told wherever the gospel is proclaimed? What's so special about this? Well, it's that she acted on her understanding of Jesus, right? She had both an exalted view of Jesus. He is worth whatever I give him. I can't outgive him. I should be entirely committed to him because he's that amazing. And she understands he's going to die. And in light of that, she acts. She laid it all on the line in honoring King Jesus. Friends, I wonder about you. In your life, if somebody looked at it from the outside, would they see an all-out commitment to Christ? If they looked at your schedule and your finances, 
if they looked at your hopes and your dreams, your aspirations and desires? Do you make it your aim to honor him no matter the cost? This woman is a wonderful example for us of treasuring Christ because she understood who Jesus is. That is, if we want to treasure Christ, we need to understand who he is. If we want to be devoted to him, we have to understand both his glory and his humility. And so we come to our final part of this Mark and Sandwich in verses 10 and 11. Look there, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. How will the chief priests find a way to get rid of Jesus? It's as if Judas Iscariot is the answer to their prayers. The words of verse 11 are some of the most chilling in Mark's gospel. Literally, it says, when they heard it, they rejoiced. Friends, can you imagine that? The chief priests rejoiced and were filled with happiness because their sinful plot of murder was coming to fruition. Consider just the, how wicked in heart of heart you have to be to rejoice in such evil. Mark doesn't tell us exactly what made Judas betray Jesus, but notice the contrast between the woman and Judas. I think this is the reason why Mark inserts the story of the woman right here. While she handed over her treasure to exalt Jesus, Judas handed over Jesus to acquire more treasure. She loved the Savior more than her money. He loved his money more than Jesus. Beloved, beware of the love of money. It is the root of all kinds of evils. A love for money will lead you into sin and foolishness betrayal, and compromise. In, in what ways are you seeking to honor the Lord with your finances and treasure Christ more than your bank account? Judas here serves to advance the chief priest's wicked aim of murdering the holy and righteous one, all for about a month's pay. Yet if we thought that Jesus was somehow an unsuspecting and naive victim uh, unaware and unprepared for what's to come. Our second point this morning shows just the opposite. So let's turn to verses 12 to 16 to consider the Passover prepared. This point will be brief. And I think these verses exist to show us how in control Jesus is. So verse 12 states, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you have us go and prepare for you to eat? Notice again that Mark frames the action by highlighting the exact timing of everything. It's the first day of this feast when they killed the Passover lamb. And then in verses 13 to 16, Jesus tells his two disciples, go into the city, you'll find a guy, he'll bring you to the room. And verse 16 records that they found it just as he had told them. The point I think that Mark is at pains to show us is how in control Jesus is. Uh, as he says in the Gospel of John, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. 
of my own accord. And so, brothers and sisters, it's such good news that Jesus is in control during his suffering and death because that gives us hope, doesn't it? In our suffering and even in our death. Because, I mean, if Jesus couldn't take care of himself, what reason would we have to think that he could take care of us? Yet here we see that Satan is not calling the shots, but the Jesus is. Uh, the chief priests and Judas make no mistake. They have their own schemes. Satan is at course at work in the background, yet Christ is in control. And so let's turn to our third point. In verses 17 to 31, entitled, Disciples Prepared for Jesus' Death. Here we find yet again another Mark and Sandwich. Jesus is going to begin in verses 17 to 21, discussing his disciples and how one of them will betray him. Then in the middle, in 22 to 25, he discusses the Lord's Supper. And then in verses 26 to 31, he returns to the theme of how the disciples will fare. So the beginning section, look at Jesus' words in verse 18. The large upper room was likely filled with a large group of Jesus' followers, including men and women and children. So it's not just Jesus and the 12. Uh, it's a bigger group. Verse 18, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. I mean, this is shocking. Uh, this is terrible. But it's not unprecedented, is it? Because Ram has read for us Psalm 41 earlier in our call to worship. Do you remember how David said that his enemies were conspiring to put him to death? And verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. In this, King David's experience typified and anticipated what Israel's true and greater king, Jesus Christ, experienced. Friend, do you know the sting of betrayal? Uh, if so, you know that it's one of the most painful experiences in life. Perhaps it was the marital infidelity of a spouse or betrayal from a parent or the abandonment of a friend in a moment of crisis. Uh, beloved, Jesus knows your pain. He knows what it is to be betrayed by one whom he loved and spent time with. He knows what it's like to experience the sting of rejection and abandonment. When you feel that, turn to him, knowing that he sympathizes. Yet notice how everyone responds in verse 19. Uh, I think the NIV really gets the point across. Anyone have an NIV here? Great. NIV, I think, nails it. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. That is exactly what the Greek says. They're expecting a negative reply to the question, It's not me. Right, Jesus? You can't be talking about me. I, I would never do such a thing. Yet, friends, what would have been a more humble and godly response? I think 
something like, oh Jesus, it must be me, isn't it? Lord, you know my heart. You know how fickle I am. You know how fleeting I am in my affection. You know how I, I'm a coward and I turn away and I, I choose what's easy, the path of least resistance. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh, Jesus, it's me, isn't it? Yet for the disciples, they assume that they would never fall into such a sin. They would never fall into such foolish, public, heinous sin. And rather than showing heart-searching honesty, they proudly assume that they are immune. Beloved, I beg you not to underestimate the power of indwelling sin in you. If you have been united to Christ and his Holy Spirit resides in you, you have resurrection power to help you fight your sin and put it to death. Hallelujah. Yet, just because of that, do not assume that you are safe from temptation. Do not assume that you would never ruin your life with sin. Don't assume that you can coast in the Christian life and that you will make it home to glory one way or another. Because if you do assume, I'm good, I got no problems, well, you will be most unprepared for Satan's temptations, right? Because when am I most likely to get in a car accident? It's when I assume, ah, we got no problems here. Let me check my phone, change the song, enjoy the scenery. There's no danger here. Well, of course, that's when you get a bumper to bumper. That's when you, a small accident, a large accident, who knows, but you are most susceptible when you are most arrogant. Uh, Brothers and sisters, may we never lose vigilance in watching our own hearts and encouraging those around us to continue the fight against indwelling sin. Jesus continues in verse 20. He said to them, it's one of the twelve one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if he had never been born. You know, he clarifies in verse 20 that it's not just someone on the outside, but it's part of Jesus' own inner ring who defects. And then notice how Jesus ascribes this to both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In verse 21, right? The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Okay, well, where is it written? And who wrote that down? Well, God did. In his book. In the Bible. God is God, so God knows the future. He knows what people will do. He is sovereignly shaping and orchestrating all things. And so there's nothing in human history that surprises him. And thus, hundreds of years before Jesus was born of Mary, God inspired the Old Testament prophets to write about Jesus' suffering. Make no mistake, God planned and intended for his son to suffer for the sins of his people, right? I mean, Jesus didn't just show up by accident. This was God's plan 
all along. And woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. That is, Judas is accountable for his actions. Now, the word woe means accursed or damned. So Judas doesn't get off the hook, right? He doesn't get to claim. Well, you know, God was in control. I didn't really have a choice, now did I? I I'm the victim here. No, friends, in the Bible, we see very clearly that God is totally sovereign and we are totally responsible for our actions. Now, if you ask me next, next Sunday night on November 6th, Scott, how do those things work together? I'm not entirely sure. I'm very happy to say that. What I'm not happy to do is to relax either one of these, right? To say, well, because man is responsible for his actions, there's no way God can be sovereign. Well, Jesus says the exact opposite. Or, well, God is sovereign. So there's no way that man is responsible. We're just robots. No, Jesus says it's both. And again, we shouldn't be surprised that the infinite eternal God has more wisdom than you and me. Right? Like that's, that should kind of be a no-brainer. If we have a God that we can fully understand, it's probably the case that he's a God of our own invention. Jesus unapologetically holds both to be true. And so it's our job to live in those realities, uh, even if there's a tension. And so we come to the middle of this Morkin sandwich. Jesus has just talked about how his disciples will respond, how one of them will betray him. And then in verses 22 to 25, uh, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Now, we could preach a whole sermon about the Lord's Supper. Uh, we could spend a ton of time cross-referencing other New Testament verses about this. And we read earlier in our historic catechism from the Westminster Confession, uh, how Christians have historically understood it. We could have a wonderful, great time. Again, maybe next Sunday night. You want to ask about the Lord's Supper. Talk about the theology of it and, and, and all that. We're not going to, however, get into all of those weeds. We're going to mainly stick with Mark and his emphasis, what he's shown us here. So notice verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take this in my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, gave it to them and they all drank of it. Now pause. To understand this passage, again, we need to remember that Jesus is eating a Passover meal with his disciples. It's not just a Tuesday night, they're having a cookout. This is a very specific meal that they're having. Uh, and the Passover meal was kind of like a progressive dinner. Okay, I don't know if you remember those from the 1990s, early 2000s, but progressive dinners, you, you go through different stages, right? Uh, the Jewish Passover meal had four stages, each one concluding with the drinking of a cup of wine. Uh, it's likely that Jesus is here concluding the third round, the third kind of stage with his disciples. And yet what first seemed like a normal Passover meal changes dramatically there in verse 24. Look there. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. You see, the Passover meal was a celebration of God's redemptive actions. 
Again, we read about it earlier. Uh, The exodus from Egypt and God's salvation there was so important, so monumental, that God wanted there to be a yearly remembrance so that nobody forgot. This meal was a perpetual reminder of the great salvation that he had worked for them. And so for, by the time you get to Jesus' day, for 1,400 years, Jews have been celebrating the Passover meal, looking back at God's deliverance. And then Jesus comes and he says, stop looking back. God's work at the Exodus is no longer the pinnacle of salvation history. When Jesus presides over this Passover meal, he doesn't look back, he looks forward. He institutes a new meal that doesn't recall the first exodus from Egypt, but will remind his followers of the second and final and greater exodus, the salvation from sin. For at this new meal, Christ's followers are reminded of being saved, not from wicked King Pharaoh, but the wickedest of princes, the prince of darkness. Uh, We who are enslaved, not with literal chains that, you know, could be broken, but with spiritual chains to the powers of darkness and sin. We who were totally unable to redeem and free ourselves, we who needed a mighty act of God to deliver us. And then Christ came to rescue us. Think about what those first Israelites did, right? You remember God said, I'm coming in judgment. While every one of the other nine plagues made a distinction between Egypt and Israel, such that, uh, you know, Egypt got darkness, Goshen, the land of the Israelites, got light, they got hail, they got 75 degrees and sunny. Um, For the 10th plague, this last judgment was coming on everyone. Death would come to the firstborn of every single household. Except if you Israelites take a spotless lamb and you kill it and you apply its blood to your doors and you then hide indoors, you will be safe. So make no mistake, on that first Passover, in every single house, someone did die. It was either the firstborn son or the lamb. And so, beloved, what had God told his people in Exodus 12? If you will hide under the blood of the lamb, if the spotless lamb will die as a substitute, my wrath will pass over you. And friends, that is exactly what Christ has accomplished for us. If you will hide under the blood of the spotless lamb of God, God's wrath will not visit you. For Jesus will have died in your place and as your substitute. You see, now Jesus is our Passover lamb. We too hide under the blood of the lamb. We take refuge in him. This is what Christ has accomplished for us. That's what he's communicating with this meal. When he institutes his meal in the place of the Passover meal. 
Don't, don't pay attention to the Exodus as much anymore. The real deliverance is the cross. Notice how Jesus says in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant. What covenant is he referring to? Well, it's Jeremiah 31, what Dave led us through with our assurance of pardon. The Israelites had been saved by that first Passover lamb. And then a few chapters later, not Exodus 12, but Exodus 24, they were sprinkled with the blood of the old covenant. And here, Jesus enacts a new and better covenant with new and better promises. Promises from Jeremiah 31, like, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall all know me from the least in the grace, and I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Brothers and sisters, why can you obey God from the heart? Because of the cross of Christ. Christian, why is the Lord your God? And why are you a part of his people? Because of the sacrifice of Christ. Do you know God? It's because of the death of Christ. Why are all your sins and transgressions forgiven? Because of Christ. Because of the cross. That's where Jesus was headed. That's why Jesus is pouring out his blood. You notice there it says, for many. It's an interesting phrase. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord, who bore the sin of many. Or to use the language of Mark chapter 10, he's the son of man who gives his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, it's this sacrifice that we get to celebrate every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, like, Lord willing, next week. As Matthew 24 records it, every time we partake, we do so in remembrance of Christ. So I don't think the body and blood literally becomes Jesus' body and, sorry, the bread and the cup clearly do not become Jesus' body and blood, right? Jesus is literally sitting there in front of them. Uh, he doesn't all of a sudden disappear and become the elements. No, these are symbols. Just like the Passover meal existed to remind, don't forget the great salvation that God has worked. Well, that's what now Jesus has instituted his own meal. When we remember and look back, just like Israelites had done for generations, we marvel at God's salvation. Just as the Israelites for 1,400 years had looked back and remembered, that's what Lord willing will do next week. And yet, the Lord's Supper isn't like a toast, right? It's not like, to Jesus, our fallen comrade. Gosh, I wish he were here. No, because Jesus isn't a memory. He is alive. He's not dead anymore. That's what Jesus says in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Translation, I'm going to be drinking wine again. This isn't my last feast. This isn't my last party. No, because just as the Passover was a temporary institution, so too the Lord's Supper. We will not partake of the Lord's Supper when the kingdom of God is fully consummated. Then we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so whenever we partake in communion... 
We do with one eye looking back, remembering the cross. And with another eye, we look forward and we say, oh, come soon, Lord Jesus. Oh, come soon, Lord Jesus. And so we come to our final section in the Mark and Sandwich. At the end of our passage, verses 26 to 31. Verse 26, they sing a hymn, reminding us that we don't need to restrict our singing to our weekly gatherings. You know, in our homes with our family and friends, we should be a singing people. And then in verse 27, Jesus returns to the theme of how his disciples will fare. Again, this is the theme that Jesus had begun the meal with. He says in verse 27, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. You know, earlier maybe you were thinking, okay, one of his disciples will betray him. That's not great, but Jesus is still batting 11 for 12. That's, I'm not, you know, in baseball, that's really good. Oh, here we see that all will abandon him in his hour of need. Uh, Jesus is certain of this because the scriptures have said it. Jesus quotes from Zechariah 13. Notice who it is that afflicts Jesus there. Of course, we've seen the chief priests and the scribes and Judas now conspire to kill Jesus. Next week, we'll see Pilate and the Romans and their role in Jesus' death. But here in verse 27, the quotation from Zechariah 13, it lists God as the one who will strike the shepherd. You see, again, in all of this, God was orchestrating events. To use the language of Isaiah 53.10, it was the desire of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Beloved, on the cross, God's very wrath against sin and sinners would be poured out. Yet death was not the end of the story. As we've seen, Jesus consistently predicted his death and then his resurrection. And notice, he seems to be saying that he will be reconciled with his disciples in Galilee. And then in verses 29 and 30, Peter brashly and boastfully asserts his own moral superiority to the other disciples, proudly insisting that he would never desert Jesus. But of course, he, Jesus knows better. So what's the point of this final Mark and Sandwich? Why arrange the material like this? What, why would Jesus begin talking about the disciples' failure, then we get the Lord's Supper story, then we get the disciples all falling away? Well, I think the point is this, that Jesus was headed to the cross, not for the righteous, or the perfect, or the godly, but for the unrighteous, for the cowards and the liars, for the proud and the boastful, for the hard-hearted and the self-assured. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. Not just that Jesus died, that's wonderful, but that he died for people like you and me. Because we are just like the disciples, aren't we? Sinners, totally undeserving, totally morally bankrupt. 
Christian, Jesus died not only to forgive the sins you committed before you became a Christian. Jesus died as well for those, in some ways, more egregious sins. Those worst sins that you and I commit after we've come to know him. Friends, here we arrive at the heart of Christianity. That you and I are sinners deserving of God's wrath and judgment that he would strike us, yet because of his great love, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of God incarnate, came to earth, took on flesh so that he could die. And he died so that he would rise. And he died and he rose and he ascended and he's coming back so that we could be saved. So that you and I could know and enjoy God forever. Friends, if you're not a Christian, this is the great news we want you to believe this morning. If you are a Christian, may we learn from the woman's example at the beginning of the story. May we be humbled by the disciples' failures, and may we all respond like the woman in total devotion to the dying and rising Son of Man. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are amazed that you would come for sinners such as us, cowards and boastful and proud. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your love and your grace. Father, we praise you for how you orchestrated all of history to lead to the crucifixion and resurrection of your son. Holy Spirit, we praise you that you do help us to obey. Where would we be without you? And so, Lord, we do pray that you'd help us to live lives of total commitment and devotion to the Lord Jesus, uh, that we would love him with our all, sacrificing all to follow him and exalt him. May we know his excellencies and glory. And, Father, may we know his humility and would you use that to spur us on to greater acts of devotion? Help us now. We pray all these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.